0: You're listening to Third Factor, a podcast celebrating the life of the mind and supporting all of you out there on the search for the higher path in life. I'm your host, Jesse Manistow, and today my guest is Marie, a member of our forum whose own love of the life of the mind is helping me chart the path of this project. It's never been easy to be a questioner, but these days it feels harder than it has in a long time, certainly since I've been around. As we look at ideators and visionaries in history, We also confront some of the ways that the intellect can go wrong, from the runaway utopian impulse that fueled the Russian Revolution to the profit that Sophists have been making since Socrates called them out in ancient Greece. What can we do to help the rising generation of thinkers thrive in a world that's swinging back toward the anti-intellectual? We explore all this and more on Third Factor. Marie, welcome to the Third Factor podcast. Thank you for having me. So you're a member of our community forum. So I thought we'll we'll start off by telling our listeners that if they're not already subscribers at the community member tier, they could sign up there and they could come talk to both of us about what they hear here today. And in fact, I would go so far as to say we would both really like that. We're trying to cultivate that community. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, that would be great. If this resonates, please. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to build something. Uh, and it, it, I, in fact, I asked you to come on the podcast in, in what might end up being the first episode we air. I have recorded one more as as we speak, but I might air this one first because you and I have had so many conversations that have helped me get to the core of what the Third Factor Project is supposed to be about what I am looking for here. You know, I, I, you need feedback from other people, what they're hearing. Uh, and so it's all been there in my head, but you have helped me make it less intuitive, less, less abstract, more explicit and concrete, which is important to reaching our niche audience. So thank you for your help with that. And uh, maybe we can get some of those ideas out there for our listeners today starting with the topic that we have chosen to orient this conversation, which is the life of the mind. So I wonder, can we kick off today with you saying, what does the life of the mind mean to you? That's quite a question. And um,
1: (laughs) I tried not to prepare a response. To me, it just involves a lot of freedom. And for me, it feels like a choiceless freedom. That makes sense. It's just kind of where I go. It's how I've been as long as I can remember, just feeling like I have a pretty big imagination. I just want to understand why things are the way they are in particular ideas, concepts. Why is it like conventional wisdom is, for example, what is conventional wisdom? Should we test it? Should we just accept it? Small talk, you know, what is small talk? What's, what does it serve? What are ways in which, It can detract from our everyday experience. Maybe are there things that we should push back against? And having the freedom to do that, to me, is the life of the mind. And maybe going back to the idea of freedom, the freedom to do that inside yourself, but also the freedom to do that in public, (laughs) which uh, has (laughs) led to some awkward experiences. I have to be honest, and I've grown better at and figuring out when to turn it on and when not you know when when it might actually lead somewhere and when it will just get people think hey you're okay okay weirdo (laughs) and and just being a little more judicious in employing it and knowing when and when not to but just having that sense that you know we can push back on ideas even ideas that are popular even the unspoken things Like we can do that and we can think about
0: everything, you know, hopefully. I love that so much. I think you got right to the heart of what we're trying to cultivate, a space where we can do that, where we can develop skills at doing that, at being um, unflappable, to use a word that just came up in the written forum. That's a good thing if you're trying to live this life. We will unpack that in this next hour or so, but before we keep going, I'm going to read a passage from a book that, in fact, Marie prompted me to read, though my husband, Max, had already read it. I'm reading a copy that he has marked up, so this is great. You know, this is finding our people. The book is the classic by Richard Hofstadter, Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, winner of the 1964 Pulitzer Prize in nonfiction. And this is from Chapter 2, On the Unpopularity of Intellect. And we actually, I read this for a discussion group we had a week ago for our, uh, our members, you know, just getting together and talking about this amongst ourselves. So, On the Unpopularity of Intellect, about a page. Here it is. Anyone who scans popular American writing with this interest in mind will be struck by the manifest difference between the idea of intellect and the idea of intelligence. The first is frequently used as a kind of epithet. The second, never. No one questions the value of intelligence as an abstract quality. It is universally esteemed, and individuals who seem to have it in exceptional degree are highly regarded. The man of intelligence is always praised. The man of intellect is sometimes also praised, especially when it is believed that intellect involves intelligence, but he is also often looked upon with resentment or suspicion. It is he, and not the intelligent man, who may be called unreliable, superfluous, immoral, or subdued subversive, and sometimes he is even said to be, for all his intellect, unintelligent. Although the difference between the qualities of intelligence and intellect is more often assumed than defined, the context of popular usage makes it possible to extract the nub of the distinction, which seems to be almost universally understood. Intelligence is an excellence of mind that is employed within a fairly narrow, immediate, and predictable range. It is a manipulative, adjustive, unfailingly practical quality one of the most eminent and endearing of the animal virtues. Intelligence works within the framework of limited but clearly stated goals and may be quick to shear away from questions of thought that do not seem to help in reaching them. Finally, it is of such universal use that it can daily be seen at work and admired alike by simple or complex minds. Intellect, on the other hand, is the critical, creative, and contemplative side of mind, Whereas intellect seeks to grasp, manipulate, reorder, adjust, intellect examines, ponders, wonders, theorizes, criticizes, imagines. Intelligence will seize the immediate meaning in a situation and evaluate it. Intellect evaluates evaluations and looks for meanings of situations as a whole. Intelligence can be praised as a quality in animals intellect being a unique manifestation of human dignity is both praised and assailed as a quality in men when the difference is so defined it becomes easier to understand why we sometimes say that a mind of admittedly penetrating intelligence is relatively unintellectual and why by the same token we see among minds that are unmistakably intellectual a considerable range of intelligence this distinction may seem excessively abstract but it is frequently illustrated in american culture In our education, for example, it has never been doubted that the selection and development of intelligence is a goal of central importance. But the extent to which education should foster intellect has been a matter of the most heated controversy, and opponents of intellect in most spheres of public education have exercised preponderant power. End of the quote. And remember, that's from 1964. So I should say we're talking about American life in that book, but you are not in the United States. You're in our neighbor, Canada. (laughs) that's right but i don't i don't get the impression it's a lot better there
1: no i don't think so i think it was for a period of time quite frankly it was just a bit more openness to ideas it was less um i i feel like the united states having experience living in both countries the united states is always part of its strength i think is its pragmatism and um The idea that if you're good at business, if you're good at building bridges, there's going to be a space for you. And there's something pretty great about that, because society does need functioning bridges and people who know how to solve problems. However, I always felt there was a bit more um, side eye coming from Canada, certainly amongst the intelligentsia that or even even amongst people who weren't in the intelligence who kind of felt like yeah but americans are kind of quick tempered they're a little too quick for example like i remember my grandfather really hating i guess the nato bombing um that was going on in the balkans and it was kind of shocking for me to hear but he was like yeah, yeah that's just the american's first instinct you know what i mean bomb bomb bomb. and i i just think so in a way canadians have the benefit of not of kind of looking in a questioning way at what goes on in the state, probably similar to the um, to what they do in Europe. I've lived in Europe for a bit as well. Right now, no, I don't really think. I feel like there's a fair amount of anti-intellectualism here as well. Uh, um, there, there's maybe there's intelligence. I, I, I that was really fascinating. The di- unpacking the distinction between intelligence and intellect. And I mean, to even just get to that would be pretty, would would be pretty important. But in terms of in life of the mind, no, I don't feel like it's, um, I feel like it's fairly hostile space here as well for intellectualism.
0: What I thought about as you were discussing the way that even intelligence, intellect, can turn on intellect—that is a thing that happens. We get argumentative. We still seek status. Well, not all—not all intellectuals seek status, but plenty do. And so, uh, sophistry is perhaps something that becomes relevant in this conversation very quickly. Sophistry, of course, being the the, the great battle between Socrates and the sophists socrates the 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 quintessential incorrigible questioner the patron saint of this crowd if you will and he was in this battle uh against the sophists he and plato uh who went around selling their skills their uh rhetorical skill to sell nonsense and to advance personal interests rather than this higher lofty pursuit of truth which is not necessarily what the life of the mind means to everyone, but I would say when you strip that away, it, it ceases to mean anything that we should defend. And yet I wish to defend it, so that's always implied.
1: Oh wow. I mean, you bring up the sophists and you bring up how they would they would basically profit off of being clever. Right, and I think you have a tremendous amount of that going on right now. If we can venture into dangerous territory, when I look at all of these um, DEI consultants, they seem that seems to me an example of sophistry because it's not that they're completely wrong, but they've taken these ideas, right, that we have to rectify inequality, which are lofty, yet they've been they 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 use a lot of really big long words like intersectionality which sounds really really intellectual right they're coming straight out of the academy and it sounds like the ideas are lofty but they're actually not and people are making a lot of money off of them I've heard consultants coming into a lot of sports for example making we're talking like several thousand dollars an hour and school boards are not are, are not loaded, don't have a lot of money, but, you know, it sounds like you're doing something about the problem in education. And there are many, many problems in education. It looks like you're doing something about it, but all you're really doing is bringing these high highfalutin ideas that don't really say anything, but they just appear to say something. And I mean, that's, what's so remarkable. I think when you study the classics, I haven't formally studied the classics, but, or anything you know, classical, far-reaching, you realize these are eternal problems. These were true in the times of ancient Greece, and they're still true now. There will always be people who can package ideas that sound fancy, who are very clever enough to do that, but they're not really intellectual. And that's really the danger right now, because not only have these packaged these ideas, but they've also found a clever way to shut down people who might challenge them. Because if you challenge them, you're suddenly a heretic. So the whole thing, I think, really does. And these ideas really are largely coming out of the United States. Uh, Sorry about that. It's taking, it's, it's the ultimate con. I mean, I think of the archetype of a snake oil salesman. And it was always there growing up, you know, when I was a kid in Canada. They're slick. They know how to package things. And there is some truth to that, but they're so good at it. These people who are doing this, and it's not just the Americans at this point. I think this has been adopted many places, including here. They're so good at it. They developed a way t- to prevent people actually pushing back against it. And so, you know, I guess if you could call it neil mccarthyism I don't, but it, it's really fascinating. I think in about. 10, 15 years, we're going to be really looking back on this. And there's hopefully, hopefully if the academy isn't dead, we'll have some really interesting scholarship coming out of it.
0: I think you're completely right. I want to note for our potential uh, audience me- or our audience members who might want to join us, we have done some online courses that the Third Factor community does together. We've done the Ethics of Aristotle, which was really interesting. We really had fun talking about that. And the one we're probably going to do next Uh, which i'll announce later i'm not formally announcing it here this is a little bit of a sneak preview but it talks about um the snake oil salesman that you're talking about that that the sophists are basically the pr ad guys of the past and the political consultants and the people who help advance an individual's interests rather than pursuing what is good and true and this is where i have to put in caveats for our listeners because what i have strived to cultivated third factor is a place where we really can engage with these ideas we should be clear we're not troubled by the ideas so much as the prohibition against discussing the ideas like if you're sincerely believing that intersectionality is the way to go and i believe some people are sincere and it comes from a good impulse sure that idea should be fully and honestly considered and respected as an idea that's part of the life of the mind But it's what you pointed out it had it's no longer that it's presented as a religion as questioning it is heresy i mean you see that all the time now that debate is off the table well debate shouldn't be off the table i understand that debate's not always appropriate in a relationship or something you know it's not always the strategy you want to use but you can't ban it whole cloth in all situations that is an abdication of what we are going for and so anyone who wants to talk about this and advocate for it Please come on in. In fact, I would give you a free discount code to try out our community and just see if you want to come in and advocate for these things that we're criticizing. That's what we're for. That's what we're defending. And unfortunately, we are skewing in that direction politically because that's where the life of the mind needs to be defended for the reasons that you just elucidated, Marie.
1: You know, in listening to you say that, there's this line, I hope I don't mess it up, I think
0: it's from Langston Hughes,
1: what happens to a dream deferred? I wonder what happens to a thought deferred. Like what happens to a thought that you cannot challenge? It doesn't go away. It gets lodged in there. And I, the fact that I cannot in my workspace debate whether or not it's a good idea to expose my students to certain ideas. Let me rephrase that. I, yeah, we can expose them to certain ideas, but these ideas that they're not really ideas, they're diktats, right? Right. And they're not supposed to push back and I'm not supposed to push back. Those kids are thinking, maybe this is a bit messed up or maybe I should push back about this or maybe they're half right. Their ideas are in there. And I think maybe part of the reason we have these, perhaps you have alt-right movements, you have, the, you have all of these fringe groups who um, know They have to develop a fringe because they can't do it openly in the public sphere. And the whole point of a democracy, I think, is to have a thriving public sphere. So when that's shut off, well, the thought doesn't go away and you want to discuss it, but you can't. Or maybe you start to think there's something wrong with you for having it in the first place. And it's sort of going back to what you were saying, the Hofstadter passage, intellectual ideas. There's this idea that they're subversive immoral there's something suspicious about them all of that can be true because when you're pushing back when you're pushing back against ideas there is a subversive quality to that yep we need it but we also have to push back against the subversion as well i know you jesse i love that you were reading up on on trotsky and Lenin. right these are (laughs) kind of like the bad boy (laughs) bad boy third factor chance maybe they would sign up and they would have these really well-developed ideas But maybe, you know, hey, hey, Trotsky, I'm going to push back on that. And let's keep the conversation going. You know, because we need to hear those ideas. I mean, Marx, I mean, Marx was a major intellectual. And I'll be honest, I I read Marx as an undergraduate, and I got high off of reading passages from Marx, because those ideas were fascinating, just the idea that I could be alienated from a piece of furniture. That's mind blowing. And it's, probably valid there's probably some validity there does that mean just because i don't know who created that share that i necessarily need to revolt against the entire capitalist structure for producing this chair or does it mean that hey maybe we can reform capitalism to be more humane because it really did need to be reformed it was quite cool and i think engels wrote quite eloquently about that well that could have been you know a more nuanced discussion and you know, so maybe you know, just like doing a little time traveling, you think, well, what if, what if more robust discussion were permitted? Maybe, maybe it wasn't inevitable that you know, like you mentioned the mensheviks You know, a lot more about it than I. Maybe it wasn't inevitable that Martov, right? Mm-hmm, that maybe right. She could have had a more. Jesse and I talk about this, and she mm-hmm. she's been filling me in, and I'm super intrigued. 20th century Russian history, 19, 20th mm-hmm. century Russian history, maybe Martov, the more moderate wing. <laughs> <laughs> what else? That's not impossible.
0: You know, I, sometimes I just want to put in my my Twitter bio, right? Like my political affiliation is just Menshevik. Because I get told, I get told I'm a conservative. Like, well, I don't, I don't think I, I don't, I'm not offended by that, but what it doesn't seem to convey my my full ideas. but but yeah why didn't it work and I think when we look at the Mensheviks and what happened to them because Lenin said about Martov that he was the smartest man in the socialist movement before it split into Bolshevism and Menshevism and Lenin was really unhappy that he wasn't on his side but he maybe had some qualities that were a little more uh cerebral and restrained and of course sometimes some people do think that might makes right and I don't know exactly uh Julius Martov's take on that but let's just say let's jump back to Lenin Trotsky and Stalin I have I'm working through the the trilogy by Robert Service on uh the the three leaders Lenin Trotsky and Stalin I haven't read Stalin yet (laughs) that one's a little love that you're doing that a little daunting but, and, and for for the background details, for um, anyone who doesn't know, I have both been a socialist activist and a CIA leadership analyst. A leadership analyst is sort of a biographer. I love looking at, at biographies of important historical figures and less famous people, right? Because, because they're the same people. They're the same types. It, I have met Lenin's and I have met Trotsky's. You read these, and you're like, I know this guy. And sometimes they come into third factor. And You know, we had a discussion about what would we do if a legit Nazi showed up? And in our culture, what what we would do in our space, and I don't claim that this would necessarily succeed, but I, I think we've got to have all the tools in our toolkit. What we would do is we would talk to this person and say, okay, why are you a Nazi? Like, what are you trying to say with that? What are your concerns? And then question those concerns. Are they real? Are they founded on things you should really be worried about? Have you considered maybe less radical solutions. Because people love radical solutions. They're so emotionally cathartic. You know, I may be more familiar with the left ones, but I get it. And 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 young people today, in, in, when I was in the Democratic Socialists of America, I talked to some Gen Zers who are growing up in this weird online culture, which I will definitely prod in future podcast episodes. But People talk about horseshoe theory. Well, horseshoe theory defines youth political culture online. It's it's the Nazis versus the socialists and even tankies. And even people are saying like, no, Stalin was cool. Like, all right, this is LARPing. This is really LARPing. I really felt that way in in DSA. And DSA changed a lot from when I joined it, when it was You know, aging sixties radicals who were very much more into the life of the mind. What I always like to tell people is I was skeptical when I joined. I went to a talk that was just on, you know, post-2008 Rust Belt stuff that appealed to me. I'm from Detroit, and they were so they were so welcoming of questioners. They um, to be a socialist in the United States before the Bernie Sanders campaign, and this was before the Bernie campaign by a few years you had to give people the benefit of the doubt you had to have your arguments presented and you you couldn't react uh you know by anger and canceling and self-righteousness because everyone would say like i'm sorry what about the ussr and they had good responses they criticized the excesses of the soviet union they were democratic socialists explicitly you were not allowed to sign up if you were a leninist tanky communist right they that was in their charter and they they encourage questioning because how else are you going to get people on board in the previous culture which now like young people listening to this may not even remember that there was a time when being a socialist was questionable uh and for good reason honestly and there it was their intellectual culture that had me sign up that they were trying to do good in the world but not in a way you know they were anti-mccarthyism not in a way that stomped out this life of the mind, this self-correcting mechanism. And that's what we're doing now. That's what I hear you saying. That's what I'm seeing. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you brought up,
1: I love your reference to cathartic solutions. And I've been there too. I know how great it feels to, to think this is the way. Like I remember reading Marks as an undergraduate and I was a teenager and I was super turned on and I think you're supposed to be at that age. Yeah. I think we're, we're just drawn to utopian solutions, especially at a very young age. So that makes sense. However, the other, the other side of the coin is you're talking about the Trotsky's and you're talking about the Martovs. Well, maybe the Martovs I don't know about as much about them as you do, but maybe the Martov is a more reflective type, the one who kind of slows down, who's less sexy, who's less glamorous, who's a bit of a, maybe I'm projecting, because this is how I think of myself. <laughs> a, I felt like a school mom yesterday on the server. <laughs> on the floor. I was coming in as a school mom and maybe a little less fun, but who has that, I'm obsessed with Cassandra and Greek mythology, who can see a few steps ahead and can project and think, oh, wait a second. This could go really haywire. This feels really great in the moment. This, this captures our youthful energy. This will, yes. This, yes, we, I mean, can you imagine living in Russia, Czarist Russia at that time? I'm sure some people were quite legitimately horrified by the czars. Their lives were much harder than we can even imagine. I mean, most sure. them, right? And, you know, I'm not saying all those revolutionary guys. I think there are more middle-class types, but nevertheless, they suffered too. I mean, Lenin lost his, his brother, was hanged, okay? So I'm trying to understand that headspace too. But let's try to hold a few thoughts at the same time. <laughs> Maybe the fact that your bro- brother was hanged, right, by the czar, makes you super impartial and in need. Maybe you need to slow down a little bit and try to figure out where this is actually going. And maybe partly what you're looking for is the retribution. Perhaps, am I psychoanalyzing him? Am I qualified to? I think it's a worthwhile thought experiment. I think a lot of people are have this release valve and they're not thinking and you know the kind of having that more reflective side is super not cool right now and there's just not a lot of room for them but because that's where all the energy is if you're reflective you don't really have it's hot you don't necessarily have the charisma to put on the brakes okay because those are people that have all the energy and all the moral authority. It's BS moral authority. Mm -hmm. I'll watch my swearing. It's BS (laughs) moral authority, but nevertheless, they do have the moral authority. And people also know, even if they can see through the moral authority, they know that they have the um, power, okay, to ruin your life. So there's an awful lot going on. But yeah, I'm kind of, I, I feel like we need to bring a little more Cassandra-like energy where we project into the future. Cassandra was cursed, right? She was, right. She was cursed that that no one would believe her and no one would listen to her. Well, okay. Um, we, I, you know, probably were people listening to maybe the skeptics around the time of lobotomies. or then the people are saying, hey, maybe we need to slow down denouncing people because, you know, they're party affiliations. It's like there's no room for any kind of middle ground whatsoever. And I guess maybe I'll stop there because that's a lot.
0: If you're enjoying this conversation, then this invitation is for you. On September 17th, 2023, we'll be discussing one of my favorite, most timely books, and one that Marie just read and loved, too. It's called This Star Shall Abide by Sylvia Engdahl, and you can find it linked in the show notes. It's the story of a heretic who's willing to pay the highest price for his beliefs, and when it was published in 1972, it won the Christopher Award for Affirmation of the Highest Values of the Human Spirit. If you'd like to join us to chat about it, Head over to thirdfactor.org slash join and sign up at the community member tier. When you enter the code podcast at checkout, you'll get 30% off an annual membership or 30% off for three months at the monthly rate. This is a great book and a great way to check out our community. We'll meet for an hour and a half on Sunday, September 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. UK time and 10 a.m. Pacific. Hope to see you there. And now back to today's conversation. Oh, there's so many threads we could pick up there Um, just to pick one or the rug out from under, I mean, um, from this generation. And so that is, is one struggle. I wonder if we could talk about the various things that are preventing the life of the mind, not on the political level. I think we've established that pretty well, but just in day-to-day life, like why can't we find a place to have this conversation, to, to, talk to young people to, uh, well, what are some of the other hurdles? There you go. That's my question. What are some of the other hurdles besides the political environment that, that get in the way?
1: That's a really great question. And I waste so much of my mental real estate on the political hurdles. And I haven't thought about this enough. And I think that's why it's good. We're having this conversation now. What cultures most value Intellectual curiosity. I think definitely outside of North America, there are places that value it more. Mm
0: -hmm. That
1: doesn't mean, I don't think it's necessarily thriving anywhere I've really been to be quite honest, but certainly it's valued more. There's a little more space uh, to kind of inch a little bit, even towards pretension. This is an idea that I'm kind of considering right now, for example, in France, you know, the culture that I know somewhat somewhat well. Mm okay to be a bit pretentious. It's even a bit respected. And there's this understanding that if you are, if you're running for president, if you haven't published a book that you're looked down upon, it does now between you and me and the walls. I don't think Sarkozy, for example, was a great intellectual, but (laughs) he wrote the book at some point. And even some of the people I call intellectuals or philosophers, I'm not super impressed by all the time. But when you have that expectation right that means that there's a bit more freedom to use the high pollutant language There's a bit more freedom to experiment and maybe hurts, right whereas perhaps in north america especially the u.s i think people are kind of like oh you're spelling nonsense you know what i mean what are you talking about you know i think that's more deeply ingrained in um in our In our culture, so that's already there. Whereas there's a little less, um there's a little more mis, uh, mistrust of of that kind of experimentation. That maybe it's a little bit foolish, and there's a
0: little bit less willingness to go there. Yeah, I would say. Well, it's interesting what you say with the French example because. Uh, we were talking about Lenin and that type of person, and that's sort of an example because he was very bright, he was intellectual, but going off in this other direction. Then in Hofstadter, he's giving, he's quoting another passage or a, a pamphlet from the post Revolutionary War period in the United States, where criticism of Thomas Jefferson focused on his being too intellectual and that it, it posed intellect as counter to the idea of character and that was very interesting to me because at third factor we're for the life of the mind and we're for character and for me sitting here in 2023 those things are teamed up they are big they go, they go they're not the same but they go hand in hand and that's that's a shift uh that's a weird that doesn't have to be the case but that's the culture we're in isn't that The idea
1: of the philosopher king. Yes. The idea was that you marry um, intellectual in in, 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 an intellectual process with virtue. I do think ultimately, and that when you are truly invested in the life of the mind, ultimately it does lead to virtue because you realize that's the only way to lead a worthwhile life. I think that constant questioning does lead you there at some point. I haven't super well developed these ideas, but that's just a sense that I have. I feel like ultimately, because if you lead if you lead a life that's unvirtuous, it's just a matter of time before you get in trouble. For sure.
0: Yeah. And you could be a sophist justifying it, but if you're if you're truly open to the criticisms that people will give you, like, hey, you seem to be just be doing this for status and power, or you seem to be doing this for the right reasons, but you seem to be missing things. Those are two major categories of criticism that if you listen to them, I'm cool with being on team intellect, intellect and character together. Intellect and
1: character. I mean, I think of a, I think of uh, Bertolt Brecht. Um, I haven't read him in a while, but this playwright who wrote these, um, I guess you would call them morality plays.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or Sask as well, like where they were hinting that the ends justify the means. And honestly, they were both uh, celebrated intellectual artists uh, that's the world plays, but he was also um, a philosopher. And where the ends justify the means, well, I would argue, had Brecht lived long enough, he could have ended up in trouble in the East German state, actually, because uh, there were they were in East Germany, they are constantly spying on each other. And the intellectuals helped were provide a lot of the intellectual brain power, but eventually it was not safe to really be a truly free willing intellectual in East Germany. I think it's safe to say. And there was a lovely film called um, "The Life of Others." I thought it was uh, that that explored this. You know, there was there was this uh, there were these uh, artists. There was uh, this playwright who lived with his girlfriend, and they. They, they started out, you know, in the dramatization, they, they were really happy to live in the socialist state. And they saw a lot of the good aspects of it. But eventually, the state would say, hey, um Hey, you know what, I think, I'm not quite sure about this, this character, I don't remember exactly what it was, but more and more, his voice became stifled. So I think it catches up with you sooner or later and you may not live to see that happen but that's a real problem and i think virtue i mean what what is 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 your state promoting values that are virtuous or not well no we know now that i think it's like 30 percent of east germans were spying on each other that is um deeply unvirtuous and it was even relatives spying on other relatives
0: I have another question to follow, but I want to make a quick observation, just that you are making a reference to a film, and you often make references to literature, and we even have poetry discussions that you lead. Those were your ideas, and they go wonderfully. And I just think about how we have moved as a culture sort of in the realm, if you're not doing STEM, you're doing the realm of the humanities, you're talking about the human condition. But now people seem to be more interested in psychology. We're psychologizing, we're diagnosing people. We're not just talking about the human experience and the struggles that go into that. And what I love that you have brought to a, a, a magazine that I did st- found based on a theory of psychology, but I realized for me it was philosophy, that I, it was really an entryway into that because we just don't have a place for that. At least I didn't ever see it in my education literature I I loved my English classes in high school and college because that is how you talk about what it is to be human and the struggles and the implications and you develop empathy and that's just like who even does that anymore but you have brought it back in you always make references to these wonderful books and sometimes I've read them and when I haven't I always want to you know I I, I've got to get to Proust this year have mentioned uh the 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 in search of times lost, which I'd love to read in French, but my French is not good enough.
1: But Victory. at least I can read it.
0: Victory, although you are quite well read, but well, well,
1: but nevertheless, I, I mean, no, uh, I'm really glad you brought that up. And I'm noticing a lot of my literary cinematic references are not current. And mm. I
0: think reason
1: for that. Yeah. It's with one exception, uh, Tar, I really like that film a lot. If, if anyone, if you all get a chance to see it, it was once again, it was the kind of film where it was a bit dangerous. Okay, it played with ideas. It had a, it had its heroine was kind of an anti-heroine, but it didn't tell you what to think about her. But those days are getting harder and harder. I find myself trying to curate. Um, different shows. I love the theater, but I'm very cautious about when I enter because I'm worried they become more and more didactic. More and more like the Brecht, like there's Brecht who was wonderful and then there's Brecht who was a bit didactic, who was telling you exactly what to think. And I feel like unfortunately we're moving more and more in that direction, but um, not to get too into the political side, I agree with you. I think poetry, for example, takes us into these places and it, 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 it forces us to get a connection with the past. Like we we read Emily Dickinson together. I'm nobody, are you nobody too? How dreadful to be somebody? Well, you know, that continues to resonate today. Yes, she was some 19th century version. Uh, today, what does that mean? That takes on a whole new eternal message in the age of social media. It still resonates. Our human experience still resonates, hello? And I think we're maybe not, I, I wanna say, let you, you're reading Proust right now? Yeah, let's read some of those older texts. Let's do that Aristotle discussion, which we're doing now because it feels fresher than a lot of the cultural products that we're being exposed to right now. And even the fact that I refer to them as products, yes, they're technically products, but I would never refer to a, a poem by Emily as a product. Okay. But some of the stuff I'm seeing now feel like products. And that's kind of the issue and reconnecting with that. I'm nobody. Are you nobody too? And even the fact, like thinking about what does it mean to be a nobody right now? Maybe that has a positive connotation when everybody's trying to be a somebody. And maybe being somebody is, like she said, like a frog in a bog. Maybe it it just reads as so tacky to me to need to be known by so many people. And maybe that's unfair, but she's grappling with this idea. So, yeah, what we're losing. And let me tell you, the kids are hungry for this. I've seen that too. Yeah, they want
0: it. They on the one hand, yeah, of course, we know that young people think they know everything and you know, they're accused of that, and some of them do, and others are more tentative, but you don't hear from them because they're more tentative, would would like to have a little bit of guidance, would like to learn some things. So, and if you take away literature, which shows the consistency of human experience and passes on the wisdom of people who have been there before you're taking away something that people really need and they feel unmoored without it and literature is so valuable and it's just overlooked nowadays and and the and the cultural products nowadays are yeah i completely agree but that brings me to my my next question uh another reason i think we have struggled and we've we've got at this a little bit um we talk about it on the forum a lot is You know, we don't want to be rejected. We, as you and I, have been maybe more inclined to be agreeable while also really wanting to disagree. You know, the question like, are we agreeable or are we disagreeable? Well, we know what we're allowed to say and not allowed to say, and we're more sensitive to that than some other people that I know. So there may be people out there who are saying, hey, like, this is all still out there. You just have to go look for it. The life of the mind still exists. I'm not sure I agree with it entirely, but there may be little pockets. There may be people who can stand up and not care what other people think, but especially young people today, they come to us, they tell us privately that they agree with these things, but they don't feel prepared to speak up because they want to fit in. They want to be cool. They want to be nice nice is big everyone wants to be nice and and that's that's a great impulse uh as far as it goes but the the fear of being rejection rejected and how that interplays with the life of the mind and especially for women right for girls and women we get circles together of course we have we have men in our group as well but sometimes we have just groups of women who have a different set of concerns about this than the men do
1: Yeah, you know, uh, it's true. I'm a bit disagreeable in moments in an erotic way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I will disagree. I'll feel compelled to disagree. And then I'll worry about it. But I'll do it anyway. There's that impulse that I'll do it anyway. Sometimes I'm so used to being the only person to say something. I worry if I didn't come off as crazy. There's that fear, too. That's why I say there's an erotic component to it. Mm -hmm. You know, but maybe calling it erotic is a bit unfair because when you're the only one to voice an opposition and you're the only one to think in that particular way because I'm sorry you know I don't feel a, a tremendous amount of energy moving in in any kind of reflective and spaces I just don't really see that that much to be perfectly frank so it's kind of finding some enough people that can you do need some mirroring it is i think challenging when you are going against conventional wisdom or you're challenging it. And sometimes, you know what? I've also been that, per- I'm so, I have such a contrarian bent to myself. I always have. I was probably also pretty annoying, objectively annoying. You know what <laughs> I mean? Pushing back, oh yeah. Pushing well, back against mm-hmm. ideas for the sake of it.
0: Maxwell, my husband always tells me that Socrates was a fist magnet. <laughs>
1: oh, a- he was and i heard
0: he smelled
1: okay we had that discussion okay i i I, whatever (laughs) through that we had the game like wow you know telephone throughout the ages i just heard that he was just not really also that appealing of a character who knows whatever but the thing is it's objectively annoying when someone is contrarian. And I've been objectively annoyed by people who push back against my ideas too. And sometimes it's so hardwired in me just to go against it. And I was always like that. I mean, it was probably maybe the tendency increased based on my upbringing where I was supposed to, you know, not do that. And I was a bit shunned for doing that, but it's hardwired. And now I'm a bit more reflective with that tendency as well. And we're like, okay, so it's very, very tricky. And you're often on your own. And that's not an easy nap space to navigate. And there's just not a lot of freedom to do it. So what do you do with that? I guess you try to find some other people that you can play with and you can have enough freedom to say weird things and say, hey, is this out there? Or is this not? You call it brain fluff on the <laughs> server. And I appreciate that. That kind of gives us the freedom to try out an idea, right? And not just write an essay where you have to defend a particular point of view. You need a bit of that freedom, a a place to workshop ideas before you get too carried away with them, which I can, I'm also prone to doing, you know? And and also, unfortunately, I think other people can get, when I bring it up to people, they can get carried along with me. I've also seen that happen too. So I have a greater responsibility to kind of (laughs) monitor where I'm going
0: with this stuff. You know oh yeah so much in what you just said yeah people there's a criticism a half-baked idea i said but it's okay it it, it's fine to have a half-baked idea as long as you are not serving it as a finished cake to say this is a cake that uh help me bake this cake is a is a need and it's a good thing and as long as you're aware of that, you know, we do sometimes have people come in with their theories and their treatises. And that's where I say, okay, this is brain fluff, you need to, you know, put this through the loom a little bit more and make it into cloth. Um, and people want maybe that to be affirmed before it, it's ready. But that's, a that's a trait that one can work with. And yeah. maybe if one has hope that they will have their ideas respected, and treated, even if they are half baked will will be received as what they are for the good that's in them. And that can be so hard because I also have, um, you know, I've observed like, oh, I'm going to, I have a questioning impulse and that can become contrarianism um, when it becomes baked in as the neurotic, fearful, you know, no one ever listens to me, the Cassandra impulse. Like, of course you become contrarian because you're not getting that need met to exercise your intellect and have it taken seriously for the value that is in it. And so we're trying to create that space. We're trying to make a space where people and maybe especially women i don't want to say we're we're recruiting especially women um we may have a men's group at some point there's been some discussion of that but right. what between like for our sake today um i have met a lot of women who have especially struggled to find this because a lot of you no know, obviously we're both exceptions to this so i'm not saying all women are like this but the the usual female typical conversation is let's meet in the middle let's make each other feel good uh let's find the common ground which is not bad right that's a good thing to have in its place but if you're a woman who wants to be a little more uh you know let me present an alternate take that can be very very hard and you can get rejected from a circle that has that agreeability as its expectation and that's That makes us more neurotic. We learned that we're going to be rejected and then we become really lonely and it spirals downward. That is so true. And it's so true on so many levels. Like
1: I even feel like (laughs) dating, for example, Mm -hmm. someone will be interested in me and then they'll realize like, oh, 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 okay. And then suddenly very uninterested and it can happen rather quickly because they're like, okay, you're (laughs) really, you know? And um. (laughs) I'm like, that's my happy place, dude. You don't get it. Like that's, and I think other people they see that kind of intensity, you know, let's say intellectual intensity, and they think that it's coming from a hostile place, and it's not. It's my favorite place to be. Yeah. And I think misunderstood is maybe a little bit even aggressive, or and that's not true. I'm I'm actually. I think I'm a fairly gentle person, actually. You know, you know me. You I would them. agree with that. Yeah, I, I really want, I, I I really do care about other people. And it's only after when I play the movie in my mind, I'm like, oh, okay. That's why he was looking at me kind of in a weird way or, and maybe it's a bit, even intimidating for some people, for someone to get that into something, or even like emotionally, like, you know, I just, I can get really just emotionally, like when we talk about poetry, like, you know what I mean? And I think for a lot of people, they're not comfortable there. And yes, they're right enough to not be comfortable there. But at the same time, where do you find that place where people are comfortable going there? And are, you know, with the question, I think, would all do best to be a little more comfortable in ambiguous spaces. Like that's the thing that I didn't really understand. Most people are very uncomfortable with ambiguity. And even a lot of podcasts I listen to with really smart people, I often find, and this frustrates me even with really bright people that there's this pressure between the interlocutor and the interviewee to to agree on something. And that's when I find, for example, heterodorks. I find it really refreshing because they will just disagree, but they'll disagree in a way that's not hostile. And I I find that quite fascinating the way Corinna and Nina do that. They're they're not agreeing like, well, but they'll say it in a really calm way. That's really, I don't see an awful lot of that. But to me, I think we also have to be, and there's just this tremendous pressure to Kind of agree, or if you ever watch, I watch a lot of French news shows, you know, where they're critiquing literature, or whatever, and they just yell at each other. Well, that can be just as shallow as anything else because the medium is the message. We're yelling at each other; that's what we're doing. But that can be just as shallow and superficial. I'm I'm looking for something else, I guess, um, or or that kind of room to do it. And I think already we're at a disadvantage because a lot of people are uncomfortable with that ambiguity. And maybe that's how society has to be. You want to have some people that can get something done, I suppose. I don't know. On the other hand, you also need some people to say, hey, there might be a bear around
0: the corner. Don't assume there isn't. I don't know. You have gotten at why this is so hard to find, I think, that you know there's so many balances that have to be struck to create a culture that is conducive to this. It's when it works, it's it's a golden age. Things have to come together, I would say, and they don't necessarily. There are a lot of things um, that have to be just right. And one of the things I think that we do at Third Factor that I hope will help with this is we have a space. It's called the Community Square where it's a little more lighthearted. You just sort of do, there's a member who posts icebreakers and they're just lighthearted conversation. Small talk is important to establish that we're nice people and to sort of get to know who this person is before you jump right into the really heavy stuff. You just can't start there. That's why Twitter doesn't usually work, you know, because why should anyone trust you? I've been told, oh, I'm lying by people who are ideologically opposed to me. It's like, well, I'm not, but I get why they don't believe me. They don't know anything about me. I could be lying. And so the relationship really matters. But to build this kind of relationship, you have to find the sort of person who wants and values this life of the mind. And that can be its own challenge. Another thing that I should mention is that people come in and they feel intimidated, right? That, oh, I'm not that smart. I don't think I can keep up. And that is something I absolutely want to push back against. You come in and you ask questions, you are welcome. We, th- those questions are helpful to us as we bake those half-baked ideas, right? You, you should not be intimidated. It doesn't matter if you're not even as, as well-read or as engaged or as quick-thinking participate in the culture that that's all that matters
1: well Socrates said the wise man knows he knows nothing or something like that I would argue that the kind of person who can admit ignorance or I'm not sure I know as much actually has the kind of intellectual humility that could really foster good conversation because I think we get in a lot of trouble with the trust of the world who think they know it all I mean Or the know it alls are also a problem, right? The know it alls. And as soon as I catch myself in the know it all space, I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) There is so much I don't know. So
0: I think those those people could be really cool. Please come. Yes, absolutely. Well, there's so much more we could say. Is there anything else that you would like to cover uh, before we wrap up this? particular episode
1: you mentioned golden ages I think that could be like what ushers in a golden age what does it mean to have a golden age and I think it has to involve once again tremendous inquiry free insight you know if you it, that that that's the only way you can have a golden age and maybe it's an interesting idea to just kind of think about are we despite all of the advanced technology around us maybe, we're kind of in a dystopian or a darker age or a dark age is amongst us because we're kind of lulled into thinking that we're not in a dark age because of all the fancy gadgets around us and all the different ways we have information at our fingertips. That's just an idea that I'm pondering at the moment. And I don't know. It's just it's just really interesting to think that in an Islamic empire, the Abbasid empire, they actually... Um, you can imagine how restrictive it was and of course there were human rights violations of the wazoo but but in order to service the leadership right the elites they trans they would do things like translate Greek the Greeks which is I guess how we found out about the Greeks they had to translate the Greeks in, in order to also worship as the, the way that as, as best possible they would translate all of these wonderful texts And isn't it interesting that in an Islamic empire, they help transmit all of this knowledge. And that's just fascinating to me. I'll just leave it there. What does it mean to have a truly golden age? What does that involve? And and that's all.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that you ended there. Because if there's anything that speaks to the third factor project, it is this effort to cultivate. Even if just in our little corner where we carry this torch, our own little golden age the higher path, the life of the mind. So Marie, thank you so much for helping me introduce this project. Thank you, Jesse. It
1: was a pleasure. And this was a fun conversation.
0: Thanks for listening to Third Factor. Ixen of Tell Your Story composed our theme music. If you'd like to continue the conversation you heard here, we invite you to become a member. When you subscribe at or upgrade to our community member tier, you'll receive an invitation to our forum where you can join in both written and live Zoom-based conversations. Just head to thirdfactor.org join to sign up. Even if you're not yet a member, you can check out our upcoming live Zoom sessions by going to our website, www.thirdfactor.org. There you can also find our show notes, loads of written articles, and sign up for our mailing list. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Mag. And we're really grateful for any social media shares which help us to find more kindred spirits. That's all for today. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again soon.